At the center of the universe, at the border between the light and the dark, stands Castle Grayskull. For countless ages, the sorceress of Grayskull has kept this universe in harmony. But the armies of darkness do not rest, and the capture of Grayskull is ever most in their minds. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait You Haven't Seen, and it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis, and this is episode number 166, and our movie this week was 1987's Masters of the Universe, and joining me to talk about it, he had never seen it before, from the Transmission Podcast, it is Jeremy. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Not too bad. So you had never seen Masters of the Universe before. No, I was a big He-Man fan growing up. Oh, okay. Well, this is going to be an interesting conversation then because... <laughs> so so what's your history with He-Man as a property, um, taking the movie out of, out of the equation? Well, I mean, you know, if anyone watching sees behind me, I, I am a fan of the 80s. I'm surrounded by Transformers. I have an Apple II <laughs> behind me. Um, I was the perfect age for He-Man, G.I. Joe, all of that stuff. So I was probably, He-Man was my second biggest franchise in terms of toys I had as a kid. Okay. Transformers. And I had the Castle Grayskull, um, you know, just tons of the figures, tons of the vehicles. And, you know, all in on the, the cartoons, She-Ra, all of that. So I just, I don't know why I never saw this movie. Um, like when it came out in 87, I was nine years old, mm-hmm. probably perfect age for that. But, you know, as we got on hearing how horrible the movie is and stuff, it, you know, I'm just like, I'm never going to see it. Don't want to see it. That's kind of fair. Um, so I'm similar. I'm a couple of years younger than you, but I was, I was around for, um, the toys uh, shortly after they launched and I had a ton of them. I had, you know, Ram man and I had beast man. I had the, there was one that had like, it wasn't beast man, but it had like a mossy skin. I remember moss man. Moss man. Yeah, that sh- yeah. That makes sense. It, that was like, I, I never had it, but that was like the, it was like actual kind of belt or, or something. Yeah. Yep. Um, I didn't have castle Grayskull, but I had a friend who did. So, you know, he was the one that uh, we would always play on there. Um, and I obviously remembered He-Man and the Masters of the Universe cartoon. You couldn't escape that thing. It was everywhere. Yeah. Um, and this movie came out. I didn't see it in theaters, but I did see it uh, not long after that. Um, on home, Whenever it came out on home video, I remember renting it, watching it. And like my initial reaction was, well, this is nothing like the show that I know. But I also didn't hate it. Like I, I was young, and it was just like, "Hey, this is you know lasers and running around," and I didn't like it. Didn't it didn't bother me? Um, so what I'd like to get is I'd like to get your initial reaction to what the movie was. We'll dive into it a little bit more, but your initial thought on the movie, and then I'd also be curious to know if you think, as a nine-year-old seeing this movie, if you would have liked it or not. Well, I actually. I didn't hate the movie. Okay. Watch it. I mean, I, knowing going in that it was different from the show and, and, you know, 
since 87, there have been so many different versions of He-Man media. Right. You know, that it, it doesn't bother me now. It, it's, you know, okay, this is its own He-Man. And then I just took it as, as it was. And it's a very simplistic story, but it's a very He-Man type story. So I, I just, you know, it's not a cinematic masterpiece, but right. You know, it, it, it was fun popcorn movie. It, you know, I, I think as a nine year old, I'd probably like it. It, you know, I'm, I'm fairly easy to please with movies. It, that makes two of you us. Know, I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, unless it's, it's something just, you know, absolutely horrible. Uh, I'm generally okay with anything, but now thinking about it, maybe my parents didn't take me to see it because of what happened in the Transformers movie that was in theaters. <laughs> and That's that true. was a bit traumatic. <laughs> so yeah. maybe they were just like, we're not going to take him to see those. You know, and, and so, it's funny you bring that up because like the thing that we're talking about and look, this movie's 30 years old, so we're not, we're not talking out of school here. In the Transformers animated movie, they killed off Optimus Prime and a bunch of characters, but, but the yeah, main one within was... Within the first, you know, half hour of the movie. Yeah, yep. Um, and, and I will admit that was traumatizing for me as a kid. In fact, I remember them doing it in the GI Joe movie too. Uh, but apparently my memory of that is they didn't fully kill him. They, there was a voiceover saying, Oh no, Duke's just in a coma. Yeah. Because of the Transformers movie. Yep. <laughs> I give... I, I give those movies credit for doing that in like, I know that part of it for transformers was a marketing decision, right? Because they wanted to introduce new toys and that was these, pretty these, much it. yeah. And these shows are, are commercials essentially for the toy lines, but I also give them credit for, for, you know, straight up doing that and not just like creating new characters and bringing them in, but killing off the old ones too. Mm -hmm. Um, he-Man is an interesting one because it was kind of the first of those things where the the animated series was born after the toys became a thing. The toys started in 1982. Then they came up with the animated series in 83. And if you get a chance to watch um, on Netflix, The Toys That Made Us, which is a great documentary series on toys, one of the first episodes they did was He-Man, and they talk about it, and it's brilliant. I love that where they're like, they're in the meeting trying to pitch the toys to the, one of the stores and the store's like, well, what else, what do you have for like, you know, a storyline or, or, or other things to go with this? And they're like, oh, well, we didn't tell you about the comic books. There's going to be many comic books in each one. And of course they had nothing. And then the next, the next thing was like, well, well, okay. Comic books, but this is for like five-year-olds kid, you know, five-year-old kids don't want to read, don't want to read. What do you've got? And he's like, well, we're going to do these one hour specials. And that became a series. And so I love like that whole story of this guy just making it up as a sales pitch and it became the thing. And the, the story, so the movie is more or less an adaptation of the toys. It's not actually yeah. an adaptation of the cartoon. The problem was the cartoon is the thing that everybody knows. That's the far more popular right. thing than the mini comics. And, and so you know, you get kids going to the, the movie theater and they're expecting to see Orko and Battle Cat and all these crazy... Because He-Man had, I mean, just off-the-wall characters. Uh, Lockjaw and Merman and all of those. Um, and you don't get any of those because 
They just didn't have the money for it. There was no budget. Right. But um, you, you get the Beast Man, who is a completely different character than Beast Man <laughs> in the cartoon. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. It, it is interesting to go back and read about the original storyline that was in the little mini comics that came with the figures before the Filmation series. Because in all of that, there is no Prince Adam um, or any of that kind of stuff. He doesn't transform from meek Prince Adam into He-Man. He's just He-Man, a barbarian dude that runs around battling Skeletor. So in that way, the movie is kind of a pretty faithful adaptation. It's just that that wasn't the story everybody knew. It's kind of like the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had to be sort of an amalgamation of the co- the cartoon, which was nothing like the comics, but they brought in right. elements of the comics. Um, and I've covered that one on this show. That was a much better uh, adaptation. Yeah. They, they did a, a great job with that movie. Mm-hmm. So, um, I. I will say, though, that they, they had a lot of uh, big ambitions for this movie. Um, and it it's kind of a bummer that it went the way that it did because if a, I think if a different film studio had been working on it, I feel like they could have had something because the producers really wanted to make this movie. Mattel wanted to make this movie. Uh, well, but Canon was the film studio who's famously low budget and a lot of B movies. Um, they actually, I, the, the story goes that, uh, they had, they had bought the rights for Spider-Man from Marvel and they wanted to make a Spider-Man movie. But what they decided to do instead of just making Spider-Man was they also had the rights for masters of the universe and they had the rights for Superman, a Superman sequel which is why Canon put out Superman four, the quest for peace and masters of the universe in the same year. They took the money they were going to put to Spider-Man split it between those two movies with the idea of these two movies will make us the money and the profits from that we can roll into Spider-Man. And then neither one worked because they slashed the budget on both. So they, instead of making one maybe okay Spider-Man movie, they make two really low budget movies that just tank hardcore. I still don't admit Superman four is a movie. That <laughs> That's fair. Um, but, but here's some of the reason why I feel like, like masters of the universe had potential and it's just a bummer that it didn't do. They didn't realize that potential better. It, there was a lot of factors playing against it. The toy line, like the year that this movie came out was also the year that the toys stopped selling. They had been, like the toy for four or five years in a row. And all of a sudden that market dried up the year that this movie's coming out. And then it's got nothing to do with the, the animated series. So all those factors are working against it, but the writer for this script also wrote the dark crystal. So he can write a pretty good script. The music, um, which the music in this movie, I really enjoyed the score. Um, it had a great feel. He worked on the music for Rocky. Like this is somebody, you know, this is a composer that's got, got some good credits. Um, Bill Conti and his music in this, I thought was, was quite good. They had the editor of Lawrence of Arabia and they had Richard Edlund for their visual effects. He just didn't have much of a budget. Although I will say the visual effects they did have aren't the worst thing I've ever seen. Like I've definitely seen worse. Far, far worse, far yeah. cheaper looking. And I think that's the thing is this is a canon film, but it doesn't feel cheap to me. There was there were some things like um was it Gwildor? Yeah. When he first came on, 
it it took a little while to get used to the prosthetics and you know the makeup and everything it just it looks so fake but then just as we got into the movie i just kind of forgot about it but sure well what they yeah yeah i mean where they cut a lot of budget was um things like setting stuff on earth that was the 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 problem right is right your your he-man movie starts on eternia and then immediately goes to earth and then spends the whole movie on earth where he-man is barely in it and then it goes back to eternia at the end um and that was for budgetary reasons much like not having characters like battle cat and orco there's no i mean they just didn't have the technology to do that like how are you going to do orco he floats everywhere you can't film that so they they replace him with gwildor which when i was a kid didn't really bother me at all and when i watch it now i get why they did it and you know, there's people that say, well, you could have just made, you know, Gwildor be Orko. Well, yes, but if Orko's not doing magic and floating around, then it's not Orko. So right. you're just going to have people Replaced upset by it that. with someone that does science stuff and yeah. serves the same purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they got, you know, they had Billy Barty to do that. The prosthetics are, for Gwildor, were a little rough. I will say the prosthetic mask on Skeletor um, worked. I thought that looked yeah. really good. I think out of all the complaints you can have about this movie, Skeletor is not anything that you can complain about. He was like, Frank Lagella was excellent. This was a Skeletor. I would love to see more of. Yes. And, and what worked about it was he was so different from the animated series version of Skeletor. Yeah. And it was Frank Langella wanted to do like, the the rumor is that he took the part without even reading the script just because his son was a huge fan. Um, I've also read that he just read the script once and said, yes, I'll do it. But either way, like you can tell he wants to be there and he is enjoying himself yeah. and he is just chewing. He's not phoning it in at all. No, yeah, he, you, you cannot, so, you cannot accuse him of phoning this one in at all. Um, right. So and the movie is I mean, so much better for it. Yeah. I mean, Skeletor has been in many incarnations just a mustache twirling villain, mm-hmm. if you can say that for a, a someone that has a skull for it. <laughs> but um, much like I see in Transformers, Megatron, he's much like that in the '80s cartoon. But there's been many other incarnations that he's more serious and deadly seeming, and I think that's what the Skeletor is. He he has pretty much won. And he's just—he—he's not losing, at least at the beginning part of the movie, because of of incompetence. He's a right. very competent villain. Yes, that is. A, I think the largest difference is that he—he he is completely competent. He's one. He's gloating, like he's just rubbing it in He Man's face in a lot of ways, um, and. He just like his entrance is great coming into that great hall, which that set their their lone Eternia set was fantastic. Again, mm-hmm. they cut a lot of budget for things like locations, so they set stuff on Earth so it's cheaper. They don't have to build a bunch of sets that that double for you know or for for Eternia outdoors and all that kind of stuff. But the money that they did put into the sets that they built, and I feel like most of the costuming um, and kind of creature effect makeup worked. And that set for the Eternian throne room, throne room, which is where basically everything on Eternia takes place except for the the one scene outdoors, which is clearly the desert of California, California. <laughs> um, looks really good. And Skeletor's entrance in that, where he comes in and you've got this 
and the music gets a lot of people say, oh, it's just a Star Wars ripoff. He's just ripping off John Williams style. Well, a little bit. You know, my note was even like the opening credits were like if Superman, the movie and Spaceballs had a love child. That was the opening yeah. credits. I was thinking the same thing. But it works like it, that's a good style of music to have. And and I liked it. And you've got this um, very Imperial March ish music going on and here comes in Skeletor and he looks completely different than we're used to seeing him. He's got that long rope, that cloak, but his staff, every time that staff hits the ground and that sound of it, it just sounds so heavy. And mm-hmm. and he's always doing the dramatic turns and he's just like very very uh Shakespearean in every everything that he delivers in his lines and Langella just goes for it and man, I just I want to go back and watch again just to watch him. It's so much fun. Um, and he's perfect foil for He-Man because He-Man is just good. And in especially in this movie, he's essentially just the muscle. But, you know, Skeletor just hates him so much. And, and you need that. It reminds me, like, another not well-done movie, but Raul Julia in Street Fighter is the same way where he's playing M Bison and he just goes for it. He took the role because his kids like the video game and he shows up and it's a, it's a credit to somebody's acting skill and their ability to just turn it on. knowing cause you know, you know, Frank Langella is on the set. Like, okay, is this really what we're doing? Well, you know what? My kid likes this stuff. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna go for it. And he just turns it up to an 11 and <laughs> it's great. All like, the best stuff in this movie is Skeletor on screen. Yeah. Um, and then to have the the way that they did Evil Lynn, because again, Evil Lynn is very different in this from the um, from the cartoon series, but they had like this interesting kind of pseudo semi romantic relationship between Skeletor and Evil Lynn that sort of breaks down over the course of the movie, like. If you watch it again and you pay attention to that, you realize that by the end of the movie, she's given up on him and almost all of it, none of it's done in dialogue. It's all done in just like looks between them and mostly right. from her. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty impressive performance by um, uh, da, 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 Meg Foster as Evil Lynn. Honestly. Yeah. And her costuming was also great. Like I said, it's not exactly like the, car- the cartoon, but mm-hmm. it was similar and it just it was great yeah i guess that uh, breastplate she wore weighed, weighed like 50 pounds <laughs> oh wow um it was made out of fiberglass and if you notice she never sits down and it was because of that thing like she she had like restricted movement <laughs> although she did say in the interviews that it did help to kind of inform her performance because it made her sort of stand up straighter and kind of puff like puff her chest out more when she would move and and speak mm-hmm. and so because i do think like she carry the way she carries herself as Evil Lynn is great because it's kind of off putting. Like it's just a little doesn't quite look like a normal person, and so you're just never quite sure exactly. I don't know. It's it's hard to describe, but it works. Also, yeah. they didn't have to give her contacts to make her eyes look really really weird. Like she has those gray blue eyes, and they're so striking on with the dark hair that it gives her this also this kind of otherworldly look. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so so we agree. Frank Langella is the best thing. Uh, Dolph Lundgren, though, I I 
people like to to bag on him for his accent in this. I didn't think his accent was that noticeable, really. Um, no. You know, I mean, he, if anything, it's just his acting ability. You can tell he doesn't have a lot of experience. No, no, no. He This but, was very early in his career, for sure. But also, he is kind of playing a fish out of water at times, and I think that, you know, not having that experience helps him because mm-hmm. that's kind of what you're playing. You're just confused and trying to figure out, get your bearings. Yeah, by having things take place on Earth, that does help uh, quite a bit. I mean, for, first of all, he looks the part. Like, he looks every yeah. bit the part oh. of He-Man. You know, the from from a physical standpoint, it works. The blonde hair with the 80s mullet and just, he, he was in phenomenal, phenomenal physical shape. Um, his accent's fine. It's just, I agree with you. It's the acting ability. Like, if you got Dolph Lundgren, so this was 87, probably filming 86, early 87. You get Dolph Lundgren of even two or three years later, and he's already immediately better. He's right. just more comfortable. Like I, I saw him I saw him a few years ago. He was um in the Arrow TV series. Yes. I'm yep. like, you know, I'm like, this is he's doing really good. And I'm like, I thought he was not supposed to be a good actor. <laughs> yeah, no, he once he got more comfortable, like the problem was this movie did so poorly and it was his first starring role because he'd basically done um Rocky Four and then this. Right. And this doing so poorly hurt him to get better roles. And so then, you know, he goes on and he does things like The Punisher, um, uh, Showdown in Little Tokyo, that kind of stuff. And he got kind of roped into these direct-to-video or B-movie action stuff. And he never, he never got to go, like, where Stallone, let's say Stallone had sort of his, here's here's my A-list acting uh, action stuff, and now I'm going to do a lot of the cheese direct-to-video, you know, and, and or or even just the bad, like, Dread, um, Judge Dread, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Dolph never got that first part of it. He never got the, the A-list part, and so a lot of people, I do think, discounted him because you watch him as Constantine Kovar in Arrow, or you watch him in the Expendables movies even. I think he's good. Yeah. He's, he's got a much better, he's much more comfortable... Uh, in front of the camera as he got going. It's just at this point in his career, he wasn't quite there yet. And it's unfortunate because, again, he's got the look. He also had he did a lot of his own stunts, um, and that was another, rumor has it, uh, budget-cutting thing where they didn't want to have, uh, they didn't want to pay for a stunt double. So <laughs> the the story was that, well, it's hard to find a stunt double for Dolph Lundgren, so he's going to have to do a lot of his own stunts. Um, I don't know about that, but... I could see like I could see Canon Films doing that though. I could see them saying, "We don't want to pay for a stunt double. Can Dolph just do his own stuff?" Uh, there was yeah. also rumor that they were going to dub his voiceover, and that's. I don't know that I believe it because he was fluent in English by this point. I yeah. think I mean, like you don't have any problems understanding him. No, no, I I feel like. Um, it's really just a screen presence thing, not so much a, a an accent issue. But I, you know, I like him in the movie. It's just the character of He-Man. And there's a reason why they didn't call this He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Because He-Man's not in the movie uh, constantly. Like, he's not the focal point of the movie. Um, in fact, there's, like, stretches of it where he just isn't around at all. Um, 
so it made more sense to call this Masters of the Universe. But yeah, I, I think he's good. I just think, you know, he gets outshined by Frank Langella, obviously, who's a more accomplished actor, but also was much more comfortable in the role um, and being on screen. Um, but, you know, Dolph, Dolph is good. You want somebody, He-Man's supposed to be a big beefcake anyway, so. Right. That never bugged me. Um, did you know Courtney Cox was in this movie? I think I had heard it. Okay. But I had forgotten about it before, like, I started watching it for this, and then I was just like, you know, I recognized her vaguely, and then when I was, like, looking up stuff, I'm like, oh, yeah, Courtney Cox, very early. <laughs> yeah, this was her first uh, major film. She basically was known for, like, um, the Dancing in the Dark music video for Bruce Springsteen uh, prior wow. to this. <laughs> I think she had maybe done some TV or some small roles, but this was kind of her first big thing. Um, but her and then Robert Duncan McNeil as uh, her boyfriend, Kevin, um, better known to Trek fans as Tom Paris, uh, a very young Robert Duncan McNeil. They're both good. I just, they're the weakest characters because they're the, the two human characters and it's their story is the, you know, as a movie about He-Man and the masters of the universe, we don't care about these two characters. And so that, that always has felt to me like it's just sort of forced in there. They're the the means to get the MacGuffin, yeah. you know, back into the hands of, of the Eternians. Mm-hmm. But for for being those roles, they play them well. And they both yeah. have good screen presence. You can tell. You can tell Courtney Cox is very comfortable. And, like, you know, watching that, you can tell she is going to be going places Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. Uh, Billy Barty we mentioned as um, Gwildor, who we have. I have talked about on this show for Legend. He was in. Um, he's been in a bunch of stuff. Uh, uh, Willow. He's also in that. Um, I liked him as Gwildor. I didn't. I never have found him to be overly annoying. Um, he definitely is, and he's meant to be. He's meant to be a little he, bit grating. He's Orko. But yeah, exactly. In fact, I find Gwildor less annoying than Orko. Yeah. When, when I go back I, and I, watch. I, I felt he was fine. It was more just getting used to the makeup. Yeah. It, the, the, the face didn't move enough. Like Yeah, the, that's exactly it. The, the lips didn't move. Yeah. Because like Skeletor's mask, Frank Langella's mask, it moved. It didn't look like a skull. Like it did kind of look like a skull, but... But you could tell it was a mask of a skull, but it moved with him. It, it it was formed a little bit better. I feel like the Gwildor one, the lips, every once in a while you'd like see his lips behind the, the lips of the, the mask. It was weird. Yeah, that was my biggest thing. It's just you could tell it looked fake, especially the close-ups. Which but, there were a lot of. Yeah. There were, there were quite a few. But the, um, um, as a character, I think he was fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's there to, to you know he's he is replacing Orko, but he's also um, the catalyst more for than Orko. He's much more competent than Orko. That's very true. And he's the catalyst for everything. He created the cosmic key and and what everyone's going for. So, um, yeah, uh, uh, John Cipher and Chelsea Field as Duncan and Tila, man at arms and woman at arms. Um, 
they're both fine. I I didn't. This is all I know John Cipher from. Uh, apparently, he was a big TV actor. Um, but it was interesting to to make Man at Arms be a little bit older in this than they portray him in the animated series, because that sort of informed like my memory of him in the animated series is that he's you know the old man, but he's not really. The the it's more of me conflating that with this movie. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they also have uh, Tila is older than she was in the cartoon. That's true. Yes. So, and explicitly in the cartoon, I always assume she's like maybe around eighteen or so, because she's actually like in the army. Yeah, but here, she's clearly in her twenties, at least. Yeah, and she's explicitly his his daughter, not like an adopted daughter or anything like that. Um, and uh, yeah, they're they're fine. Um, I'm glad that they at least had the char- those characters be the same as the show. Um, and in if even if in name only, um, it's nice to have them there uh, because none. I mean, you mentioned Beastman, but he's he's Beastman in name only. Other than that, all the villain characters are brand new created for this, uh, for the show, whether it's Sarod or, uh, what is it? Karg or blade. Um, blade, by the way, is played by Anthony DeLongis and he was also the stunt double for, um, Frank Langella. So he does the stunt work in the end as Skeletor is blade who blade. The character was originally supposed to, uh, have a very different costume. And the guy's like, I can't, do any stunt work and wear this so can we just can i just shave my head and, and do that um stick a couple knives yeah <laughs> have some knives coming off of it and you know, we'll just call that good um but those those four the the mercenaries i i never understood why like as i gotten older i understand okay you got to show the strength uh, and and viciousness of your main villain by having him just kill somebody at random. But I was always bummed that it was Sarod because he had the cool look. He was that lizard-looking yeah. thing. He reminded um, me of the snake men that were in the, the toy line. Yep. Um, yeah. So I'm like, you know, you're, you're killing a character that probably has more to do with the franchise than any of these four. Yeah, and, you know, if you're looking to base toys off of your movie, one of the more marketable characters is going to be the weird looking snake dude. And right. he's the first one to go. He basically does nothing. Um, but it was a cool look and I loved how they had uh, like a, like a um, breathe breathing pouch in his neck in the, like that's a small, small thing in the character design that I just always thought was cool to see that just sort of inflate like that, like a lizard or a frog would have. Um, but those four, th- those were some, boy, those were some creepy looking. When I was a kid, those were creepy looking costumes between Beastman, Sarod, and Karg. Yep. Beastman's like, costume was great. Mm-hmm. If they would just let him talk and not just <laughs> growl and stuff. And, yeah. you know, yeah, I was, uh, this watch through more. So I was missing, the fact like I was lamenting the fact that he doesn't speak because I, I do feel like it's missing something. I mean, in the cartoon Beastman was probably the number three bad guy you see mm-hmm. behind 
you know, Skeletor and Evil in. Yeah. Um, also, the Sorceress is played by Christina Pickles, uh, and I love that name. And um, she went on actually to be uh, Courtney Cox play play Courtney Cox's mom on Friends. So oh wow, they went on to work together. And it, I'm sure they talked all about their time on this movie. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know it. That's all they talked about. Um, and lastly, I have to, I cannot mention this movie without mentioning James Tolkien, uh, who played Detective Lubick, because that guy was the authority figure of the '80s, right? He was yeah. the principal in Back to the Future. And he is uh, in this, and I mean, he's just—he's all over the place. He—he's great. He—he he plays himself. He plays the same character all the time in those in those movies, like yeah. those. He was just Strickland in pretty much everything. Yeah, whether he's Strickland, uh, he was Stinger in Top Gun for a short period of time, and then Detective Lubick, and it's basically the same character in all three movies. Uh, but he's great. He's perfect at that, and he got to. Uh, he got to have some funny moments in this, um, but he's basically there to just complain and sort of, but, but he's like, he's great. I liked him in this. I just had fun with it. Uh, especially watching it I mean, this time. Yeah. He seemed to like pick up early on, like when he has Kevin, um, like early on when they take Kevin to look for, um, uh, a Julie. So, um, and he's like, what's this thing? And the guy's like a synthesizer and he like, I don't think this is a synthesizer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he's not a dumb character at all. He, he's figuring stuff out. It's funny, too, because he's not a dumb character. However, he's like 80s policeman where he just can do whatever he feels like and nobody's going right. to stop him. So he's just like, I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to arrest you. I'm I'm taking this with me, like all this kind of stuff. Like he's just bossing Kevin around like crazy. Right. Well, And the line, like as they're taking Kevin away, is like tells one of the other policemen, like, get a Get um, some coffee going. It's going to be yeah. a long night. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was great. Was, um, yeah. He, he stole every scene he was in. Yeah. It, it's him and Langella just stealing all of their scenes. Um, just straight up and down. Okay. So, the Cosmic Key. That's a cool looking prop. I'm just going to yeah. say it. Um, it's, it's definitely a MacGuffin, but... Um, they had, I think they made three of them for the movie. Uh, part of the one problem is they kept breaking. Um, and it looks like it was pretty complex. So I'm not surprised by that. Like, I, I guess the, my guess, because I, I didn't, I wasn't able to find anything about what would break on it, but my guess is it's like the way that the stuff would expand out from it and then each individual tine, like fork tine, would spin. I feel like that's probably the thing that was breaking more than anything. You know, people bumping into it and snapping stuff off or whatever. But yeah, or it, it you know being just treated like a football, basically. Yeah, but it was a cool looking prop, and what I liked about it, and it's kind of one of those things where I wish that they would have spent more time, uh, giving us some explanation or some background. Is the idea of the tones and music being the thing that it uses and utilizes, and that's what's holding the fabric of space together, kind of thing. That is a very He-Man concept, too. It is. It is. And they, they kind of just glance over. Like, they don't mention it until towards the end, but even though all the signposts are there, right? Like, they run into a musician, and he's the one that found it, and he thinks it's this you know musical instrument, and he can, can play around with it, but they don't. I just wish they would have given us more, like, 
informational background on like tones and how that works and how how the technology and magic kind of mesh because yeah that thing was that was such a cool concept that i was i had kind of forgotten about that part of it uh until i was watching it again and i'm like oh that's right like music just they should have made a bigger deal out of that yeah i I feel like if this movie was made today with a decent budget a lot of this stuff would have been introduced or you would have had like secondary media promoting the movie that would Mm. go into it yeah but yeah it it was like using music as the key is something that i really like and even nowadays dc comics uses that as basically um traveling their multiverse in the comics is um something that's like musically based oh nice I did not know that. I haven't. I haven't kept up on my D, my recent DC comics, but that's a cool. I like that idea because it doesn't have to be like pure technology, you know, or you're you're somehow the technology is used because that was one thing that I feel like threw people off is the the idea of technology in the He Man comics or the He Man movie. It was always there. It was He Man's like this weird mix of technology and and magic. And I think, I think that the, for, again, for budgetary reasons, they leaned more towards technology than they did the magic yeah. side of things. Um, but one of the, okay, so this is not a perfect movie by any stretch. I like this movie quite a bit. I have a fondness for it and I very much enjoy watching it, but it has, it has faults. One of those, I think just being that I'm always a proponent of like show, don't tell and and treat your audience with some respect and just let them kind of figure things out. However, you got to give them a little something. And I feel like maybe this movie was relying a little too much on people knowing the product already. Right. And it needs to, they needed to find that balance. They don't need to explain every little detail, but give us a little bit more than the, the 10 second voiceover we got at the beginning of the movie. Having He-Man do more He-Man stuff or use the power sword, like, show why that's important, that would have gone a long way. Yeah. Yeah, because there's a big deal made out of it by by Skeletor when he gets the sword and he makes this big production out of putting it toward, you know next to his chair and all that, but we don't know anything about that sword and he barely uses it. Now, some of that was uh, Mattel... <laughs> Mattel actually had a clause in their contract uh, for the movie getting made that He-Man could not kill anyone. So that's why all of Skeletor's shock troops are robots and they have sparks that come off of them was because he could kill robots, but he couldn't kill people. Um, And then towards, towards the end of production, Mattel was like, do whatever you want, but it was too late. They'd already gotten too far into it. So like there was things like that, that kind of limited them. Um, because Mattel didn't want to, um, they, I was, Mattel didn't want to have things like a love interest either, which I don't feel like would have helped the movie. So I'm glad they didn't go that direction anyway. Yeah. I mean, you could see there was like a hint of, uh, I think Tila teases He-Man when she first encounters him and Julie. Yeah. But you know, she's already in this relationship with Kevin. However, doom that relationship was from the start of the movie. But I'm also glad that they didn't 
um, try to make He-Man fall in love with her. Yeah. That just, it not needed for the story. No, it wouldn't have worked. And, and the movie's better without that. Um, not every movie needs to have a, a, a romantic, uh, interest in it. Um, yeah, I just, I do think like you could have given us, first of all, I mean, okay, if I'm remaking this movie, um, I'm not setting stuff on earth. I'm going to get rid of that whole thing altogether. I get why it's a budget thing. Um, you could also see like, that's where the budget stuff showed up is like, okay, we got a bunch of stuff set on earth. Um, here they are at, on the street and there's no other people on the street whatsoever. And that was apparently because they had to shoot at night and they would shoot from sundown to sunup. Mm-hmm. But they had to then at sunrise strike everything off the street and take everything down. So this was this was not an easy movie to make. Let's put it that way. It didn't have much of a budget. They shot for five months, most of that at night. And by all accounts, it was a difficult movie to make for those reasons. Um so the fact that it got fin and and the fact that it got finished at all is kind of a miracle, because I don't know if you've heard this, folks probably have. Um, Canon actually pulled the plug on the movie the day before they were scheduled to finish shooting. And wow, I hadn't heard that. Okay. So, did you know? Okay, if you notice, the climactic fight felt a little weird. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's a reason for that. They had shot everything up to their sword, like the sword and staff clashing with each other. And then uh, Cannon was basically like, well, you're done. You can't shoot anymore. We're, we're scrapping it. We're pulling the plug. And so Gary Goddard, the director, had to kind of beg and plead and get and put up some of his own salary to get Dolph Lundgren, Frank Langella, and the director of photography back to shoot that final fight. And it's shot all in the dark in part because they had already struck the set and they couldn't rebuild it. So they were like, well, what can we do? Uh, let's have uh, the power go out right at the, the climactic point so they can fight in the dark. <laughs> and so like, it's a miracle this movie got finished, let alone uh, that it was any good whatsoever. Um, and, you know, credit to them for seeing it through and wanting to finish it up. Um, but yeah, I, that that has always kind of stood out to me not so much when I first saw it as a kid but as I got older and I would uh, watch it again every so often because I'd be like I remember liking that movie and I'd find a VHS copy of it or you know find it somewhere I'm like oh man but the ending the ending is so rough and now you know as I as I've gotten older I know why um yeah and although I didn't realize until I was looking at I don't know if it's Wikipedia or IMDb but Apparently there's a post-credit scene with Skeletor. Yep. Like when, after I was done watching it, I basically just, you know, exited the movie. Oh yeah. 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 They were setting up for a sequel and it's all it is, is Skeletor popping out of some red water and saying, I'll be back. And, uh, they brought back Frank Langella to shoot that and they never made the sequel. However, they started working on a sequel. So there was, there was actually a sequel to this movie that uh, almost went into production. It was called Masters of the Universe 2 Cyborg. And it did not have um, Dolph Lundgren coming back. He didn't want to do it. Uh, there's 
varying accounts, some accounts say, oh, he asked for too much money, but the other ones are like, he just was miserable making it and he didn't want to do another one. Um, so they were going to get uh, a professional surfer to play He-Man. They weren't going to have Frank Langella back as uh, Skeletor. Um, it was going to be set in the future in a post-apocalyptic Earth uh, where He-Man comes back to Earth and Skeletor has come here already and like decimated the place. But they had started building sets, they had costumes ready, and then it got scrapped. And it became a different movie. And became Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, Cyborg. So that movie from 1989 started off as the sequel to Masters of the Universe. Before it became a, a Van Damme uh, low-budget. It was actually one of the last films that Canon, I think, ever produced. Because they went bankrupt, completely bankrupt, uh, not long after that. I think it was like 1990. So... Um, but yeah, crazy. Uh, it's just funny to think that they wanted to make a sequel. They had everything in place to make a sequel and then they didn't. And it became <laughs> something else entirely. Um, but yeah, I love, uh, I love when a, a low budget or a, or a bad movie like this does the sequel bait thing. And then it never happens. They did the same thing with super Mario brothers has the sequel bait mm -hmm. end credit sequence. And that never happened. Oh, uh. But yeah, um, it's funny because I was going to ask you if you stuck around in the credits or not. Because um, I mean, why would you? What what reason would you have like to right. stick around for the credits of this movie? Yeah, I mean, in in, in credit scenes wasn't really a big thing in the eighties outside nope. of Ferris Bueller. Yeah, that's it's funny because like Ferris Bueller is one of the first ones I can think of with that, and then this. I can't think of many other movies that really did it. Um, so. I, I am pretty certain that most people had not seen that uh, without being told that it was there. So, yeah, the, the, it's it's just a bummer because, like, the ending of this movie is so hodgepodge because they just ran out of money. And they had, I think the budget ended up being in the neighborhood of about $22 million for this, which sounds like a decent amount of money for a 1980s film, but... Then you got to think about the fact that it's got costumes, it's got special effects, it's got monster makeup and miniatures and all that kind of stuff that they got to do. That $22 million doesn't last very long. Right. And I'm looking now, it grossed $17 million. Yeah. Like, so it, it, was, it was in every way a bomb, um, unfortunately. And it's just like the people behind it all had pedigree with the exception of Gary Goddard, the director. This was his first and to date only feature film that he's directed was this. Um, he had been doing a Conan, the barbarian like theme park ride. That's where they Mattel saw or like the producer saw him or something. And he's done T2 Jurassic park, like all these theme parks, theme park rides, mm -hmm. but this was his only film. And, uh, he did fine. I actually kind of liked how over the course of the movie, um, when they first get to earth, the lighting is all kind of very flat and like between the, the director and the director of photography, the lighting's very flat and it looks kind of boring. But then as things have gone on, they got more and more dynamic with it. And they started having things like, you know, lighting everybody up front, but then the backgrounds are high contrast and a lot of neon lighting and a lot of like, red glow or blue glow or pink, you know, to just give it like a different look. I kind of liked how that evolved over the course of the movie. Um, and, you know, I liked the production design. I thought that uh, 
for what they were going for, it worked. Um, I liked, uh, again, the throne room was great. Um, yeah. They, they nearly burned that school down. Like that, yeah, that uh, one shot of the fire is the fire getting out of control. Um, that yeah. was a funny story well, to I mean, read about. You've got to keep the cameras going because yeah. you never know. <laughs> but, yeah. But they actually had to get the fire department there and nearly burn that building to the ground. Um, the rooftop stuff that they did, that those buildings ended up getting collapsed later on by an earthquake. Um, but thankfully that wasn't while they were shooting. Although there's a shot. So when, when uh, I keep wanting to call him Strickland and it's not, it's Lubick. Um, when detective Lubick comes out of the uh, music store onto the street and then uh, ducks behind that car and they shoot the car and it blows up. Um, first of all, like from a logic standpoint, he's dead because he was too close to that car when it exploded. But right. You see in the background, all the businesses get their windows blown out. That wasn't supposed to happen. They actually blew out the windows in that business uh, from the explosion. So adding on to all the other costs, you have insurance payments. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and that was on those uh, that street set where they had to strike every morning at sunrise and then rebuild their rebuild everything they were going to use the next night. So they would get like five hours of shooting a night. Because it, you know, it'd take them two, three, four hours to get everything set up, and then they take their midnight break, and then they go to shoot. So, yeah, the, apparently working on this was rough. Um, but I think that overall we got actually a pretty fun movie. Yeah, I, I really I mean, feel it, that way. If you're going in expecting it to be the cartoon, then yeah, I can see why it's a disappointment. But just taken by itself as its own He-Man thing. I think it, it's absolutely fine. It, yeah. You know, it, it's a fun way to spend a couple hours. Absolutely. There there are far worse action adventure films. Um so I'm I am very similar to you in that it's pretty easy to please me. Uh it, a movie's got to really really do some stuff to to make me not like it. One of those things is be boring. And this movie isn't boring. There's there's always yeah. something going on whether it's a why did they make that decision? Or, huh, that's weird. Or just genuine fun. Uh, again, this movie's worth it watching just for Frank Langella. And they oh, beefed yeah. him up. Like, they they improved that part of the script and they let him kind of work on lines in between stuff. He's got a line um, at the end of it where he, uh, tell me about the loneliness of good, He-Man. Is it equal to the loneliness of evil? And I was like, oh, that's that's actually, like, really good. But, like... Better than this movie uh, deserves. Let's put it that way. Yeah. A, and his delivery of it is great. So, you know. Um, one other thing, and I love this one because this is, again, a toy company working on a movie. And uh, they had a contest for, uh, and whoever won the contest would get a walk on, like a, a cameo role in the movie. Well, it took them long enough to do the contest, Mattel, <clears throat> that by the time they had their winner, the movie had wrapped all their shooting on Earth, and they were only shooting stuff on Eternia left. So if you notice, when Skeletor comes back to Eternia at the end of the movie, and he walks by and he grabs his staff from that little pig boy, that pig boy was the yeah. contest winner. That was his walk-on, his like cameo appearance, was 
They put him in a bunch of makeup and he got to stand there. That's why the camera lingers on him for a second. And then he got put in the the credits. You know, if I was seven, eight years old and, you know, I got a chance to be in unrecognizable makeup in the He-Man movie, I would have done it. Oh, sure. Sure. It's great for him. I just, it's one of those where if you don't know anything about that at all, you're like, why, why show this thing? Like, it's such a weird, it feels like a weird camera moment, but, and that, oh, that was another thing I wanted to mention was the camera, the camera work in this. I actually liked it. Didn't that again, didn't make it feel like a low budget movie because they did a lot of work with like movement of the camera and camera angles and things that they use. I just, I I very much like that. Like it's little things like that, that I think elevate movies like this to, because it's a, this is a cult classic. This has a lot of, this is a, a a pretty dedicated fan base. There's a lot of people that hate on it. Um, Mm -hmm. and I mean, I get it, but at the same time, I feel like this movie is better than people, than those people give it credit for those that, that really dislike it you cannot and look if you don't like it you don't like it that's that's fine i don't have a problem with that but i do think the movie is better than it had a right to be given all the crap that went on trying to make it (laughs) which is you know it's not making a film is not easy to begin with and when you've got uh a film company that is noted for not spending a lot of money and half of it is being backed by a toy company you, and you got a first-time director and young star. Like, there's a lot. There's a lot going. I mean, when you look at what Hasbro was doing with, um, they had plans to do the Transformers, GI Joe, and I think My Little Pony. All were supposed to come out in theaters, and when Transformers financially bombed, and they were getting all these complaints from parents yep. asking why their kids were so upset about this fictional character dying. Basically the other two movies went straight to, to, um, I was about to say DVD straight to VHS. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and it's just toy companies don't really understand, especially at that time, they didn't understand the connection that the kids had made with their characters. Yeah. And Mattel, I guarantee they didn't make that connection with he-man even though you know they knew how popular it was it well was just- in yeah in their mind after what let's see 87 and the toys debuted in 82 so you figure what four to six years of um just putting toys out every year and selling like crazy they've got to think we can just put anything out with the he-man name on it and kids are gonna right. love it so well yeah and they don't realize that kids particularly like latchkey kids, you know, like a lot of us were, were coming home from school and watching He-Man and basically He-Man, Optimus Prime and Duke, they were our babysitters, our father figures in some cases. Yep. And, you know, that's just, you know, you're, you're not taking that into account when you're making these movies. No. And when you see these properties being made, uh, recently um it's more likely to be people that grew up with it and have that love of it and i mean gary goddard went uh went on record as saying like he wasn't a big he-man fan like he didn't like he-man but he did like um other properties that were similar to it and he also tried to work in 
uh, kind of Jack Kirby esque like um, yeah. stuff. So you know, there's there's some of that getting worked in there. But yeah, I mean, it's it's always tough if you think about uh, other movies from toy lines. Uh, it's kind of impressive how well they did with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie just a couple years after this. It was only three years later mm-hmm. that that movie came out. And there's a reason why that had to be distributed by Golden Harvest and no studio would touch it because Transformers bombed. And so Hasbro started putting all their stuff direct to video. This movie bombed. Like these properties weren't doing as well as, as the bean counters would want. Superman 4 wasn't a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so like superheroes, comic book, cart, you know, kids, kids movies just weren't fashionable at that time. Especially they live action took... adaptations of things that were animated or were comic based. Right. I mean, I would wager that probably the Batman 89 movie helped get TMNT. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, in, in, you know, it, it, theaters picked it up because Batman did so well. They're like, we'll take a chance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean. That, that is kind of a, a watershed moment because it really, up until that point, like, because you'd had Superman and Superman did well. And Superman 2 was was fairly well received, but by 3, it was starting to teeter. And these other adaptations, because they're cutting corners and they're cheaping out on a few of the, a few of the things, and they don't do well. Because, like, Masters of the Universe is an interesting one because it feels like it's it's aimed for kids from a standpoint of there's no gratuitous violence, there's there's virtually no gratuitous language, there's um, you know, no romance or sex of any kind really. Um but yet it also has this level of of scary in some of the character designs where kids, you know, of that age, I mean, I can remember being freaked out, like I said, by Karg and and um Saurad. Because they're they're scary looking for a young kid, so it sort of towed that line of like, who's it for exactly? Because it doesn't it they didn't adapt to the cartoon, so it was okay. there was a lot of things working against this movie. Um, right. So I'm not surprised that it bombed, but I'm really glad that it has grown the the cult following that it has because I do think it deserves that, and I think it's fun. I think movies like this should be out there and, and should be a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm glad that, you know, I got to see it and finally, and yeah. I, I was, I was, you know, talking bad about the movie after, you know, for having not seen it. So now I'm like, I, I was wrong. It, I mean, it's not a great movie, but it's not a bad movie. It's right. You know, it's typical eighties, you know, just a fun movie. Yeah, I mean it's it is no worse a movie, you know, because there'll be people that'll say like they'll they'll talk up Commando, let's say, with Schwarzenegger. Like this is no worse than Commando. The difference yeah. is Commando's R rated, and this was based on a kid's property. That's your only difference, really. But this is not worse than that. I wouldn't say it's better than Commando. I wouldn't say I'm with you. It's not. I can't classify this as a great film, but it's a fun movie, and I I get yeah. entertained by it. There's a tier of movies, particularly from the 80s, that are just fun movies. Just turn your brain off and watch the movie, and this fits in there. Yeah, and visually, I think that overall it holds up pretty well. I mean, it's it's clearly made in the 80s, but 
they went the extra mile, uh, Edlin, Richard Edlund and Boss Films did, to do all of their uh, visual effects on 65 millimeter. And because of that, it works on an upscale. So when they up-res it for a Blu-ray release or a high-def release, like I watched this on HBO Max, and it's still, all the visual effects looked fine. Right? They didn't look yeah. old and dated. I mean, no more than anything else from the, the era would. So I did enjoy that. Um, I do have some audio clips I'd like to play, though, right. because this movie has has a few of those, and, and I don't remember what they all are now. Uh, so <laughs> we're going to have some fun figuring out what these are. I know this first one is definitely Detective Lubick because, and to set this one up, I love... I love using hyperbole uh, when you're going to say to somebody like, I'm going to, I'm going to put you away for, you know, a hundred years or whatever. Um, I just love that. Cause it's always so ridiculous. And this is his delivery of this. I'm going to put you away for 850 years. <laughs> like not, not 800. No, 800. not 800. Mm-hmm. 850. I, I love. It. And again, that's, that's just, uh, that's James Tolkien as only he could uh, deliver that line. You just imagine him yelling that at, uh, calling him a slacker. I kept waiting for that. Yeah, I, I, I think I also conflated that thinking he just, that was like his catchphrase, but it was only um, uh, back to the future thing. In, in my mind, he's all the same character in all the movies. And it's one universe. <laughs> he went from being a principal to, uh, he spent a little time in the Navy and now, now yeah. he's a cop. And, and he, he has seen some stuff in his life. Yes, he has. Uh, let's see. What is this one? I don't like adventures. Oh yeah. Gwildor. Just, there's something about that at the beginning. I don't, and again, Billy Barty. I love Billy Barty. He was great. I don't like adventures. Well, <laughs> you're in the wrong movie, Gwildor. Right. <laughs> um, maybe you should not invent things that can reverse <laughs> universes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like adventures, but I made this thing that is tailor made for adventuring. Uh, let's see. I don't know. I got vandalism, I got arson, I got stuff blowing up in my face around here. Now you better know something. There it is. There's <laughs> Strickland, uh, Strickland Lubeck all over again. Um, oh, this was, okay. So we mentioned the music and I love the score for this. I think it's, it's a ton of fun. The licensed music that they played, there's a, there's a Hendrix song that plays, um, when he first goes into the music store. But when, um, when Kevin and Julie get into his van at the beginning after she gets off work for her last shift, there's a song playing on the radio called Living in a Cardboard Box by a band called, uh, I think the song is titled Living in a Box by the band Living in a Box. But I had to capture a little bit of this because I heard it and I'm like, wait a minute, did I... I hear this right? So this is just a small sample of the song, which is apparently an actual 80s song. And it was just that looped. I just kept hearing that over and over. I'm like, I, okay. Uh, Am I living in a box? Apparently this band was active from 85 to 90 and then 2016 to present. And they have a website, livinginaboxmusic.com. What do you know? You gotta love it when a band names themselves and their song the same thing. Yeah, and that is just listening to a little snippet. You're like, that is definitely just a stereotypical '80s song. Oh yeah, that is as '80s as '80s gets. Uh, okay, "Innocent People" is what this one's called. 
I don't want innocent people to die. That was, again, I don't think that's Dolph's accent. I just feel like like he, and a lot of his dialogue was looped. You could you could tell that he went back and did ADR uh, on a lot of it. Um, but there was something in that delivery that, that sounded weird. I don't want innocent people to die. To die. The way he said, like the way he ended that was a little odd. But again, I'm with you. Maybe I think he's it's trying to, he's trying to hide the accent a little bit. I think so. I think so. It's funny because if you listen to him in interviews from around this time, no accent. He just he's fluent, fluently speaking English with very little accent. So I don't know. Uh, oh, uh, I am Skeletor. I dare anything. I am Skeletor. Like, come on, it's Frank. Oh, he's just so good. Even without seeing it, you can just tell he is just chewing up every bit of that scene. Mm-hmm. Acting, he's got to he's got to emote so much from behind that mask too, and that mask looked like it was pretty restrictive, but he still does it. It's great. Um, I mean, it looks see. like he's done like Broadway type stuff before. So, oh yeah, that makes sense. That being able to just emote use a hundred percent of your facial expressions. Yeah. In fact, I think he's won a Tony award in the past. Um, but yeah, he was great. Uh, let's see. There was this one. Those who do not pledge themselves to me shall be destroyed. Like that's great. I just love, mm. like that's, that's so hamming it up and overacting and I loved every second of it. Um, what is, oh, this is another Lubick. Uh, this is our, our one, uh, basically our one swear of the movie. Holy shit. But he delivered it well. That, that was probably in there just to get the rating that they wanted, like yep. in the Transformers movie. We gotta have that PG rating. Yeah. What was interesting too in that climactic scene is the way that the cosmic key worked. Cause y- how you can tell it's totally a MacGuffin is that it works however they need it to, because it's the only time we've seen every other time that the key has been used, it opens a portal, a doorway, and you have to go through the doorway to get to the other place. And this time, maybe it was because they had to run it through earth technology. It brought part of earth with it because you had like half the car and the brick wall right? Uh, and all that. I like, that's always made me chuckle. Like why? Why this one time does it do that, and every other time, it just opens a door, like a, a weird swirly portal. Um, but yeah, I love that. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, this one. So, this was a line that, if it were in a movie today, would have the Twitter sphere and the internet just just frothing at the mouth for how forced it is and how terrible of a line it is and all this other stuff. And in this case, I don't think it, it fit with the tone of the rest of the movie. Woman at arms. And her just looking straight at the camera saying it. Like, that That also was something I forgot about, is how many times characters just stared, spiked the camera, and would deliver lines. Right. I completely forgot about that. Uh, like, Yeah, I, I forgot that she called herself woman at arms. I that um, I always thought Man at Arms was a title. And, you know, she was like head of the guard or, or whatever. But mm-hmm. 
I don't know. In in the recent Kevin Smith, um, Master of the, of the Universe Revelations yep. series, she eventually takes her father's role as man at arms. I can't remember if they call her woman at arms. I don't think they do. I don't remember, but, but I only watched the I, first I always, half. Yeah, I well the second half is so much better than the first. I've heard that. <laughs> but, I've heard that. I just um, haven't gotten around. But to it. I, I I always considered man at arms is just a specific title mm-hmm. in the royal. You know, oh yes, but that was just one of those that that was one thing with this movie was they kept the tone was consistent throughout the whole thing. You yeah. never got like there was never moments where it felt like like a, like a character was delivering a line that they just wouldn't give. Mm-hmm. But that was the well, thing she, I noticed. Tila was Tila snarky throughout, and I felt that yeah. fits the character as well. Yes, but that was the thing I noticed this this watch through is like. Skeletor spikes the camera two or three different times, looks straight mm-hmm. dead down camera delivering a line. Evelyn does it at least once, and Tila Wait. did it there. Could it be uh, just the inexperience of the director? I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, it didn't bother me. It just it was one of those things I had forgotten about. Like, oh, that's right. And it, it sort of, again, it, it gives it a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek and kind of cheeky nature to it to, right. to see that these over delivered lines and we're going to do it while looking straight at you too like like they, they're in they, on the joke yeah they kind of do that in the cartoon too mm-hmm. <laughs> they're always talking right to the camera so they're yeah that's know, true be in line to that uh oh this is another lubic one um and i just it's the way he delivers the name in this well what do you know the mountain comes to Because, <laughs> uh mohammed okay all right now you're so apparently this is set in New Jersey, but correct me okay. if I'm wrong. Does she not? Does Julie not say that her parents took the plane to Catalina? I think so. So that's where I'm confused because every review and thing that I would read about this movie talks about it taking place in New Jersey and how he's a New Jersey cop, but Catalina is off the coast of California. It's out yeah, in LA. I, I thought. Well, and the Wikipedia says the key is misplaced and discovered by two California teenagers. Okay. So yeah. maybe he's just from New Jersey. Moved out and became LAPD. <laughs> that works. Yeah. Uh, two more clips here. Let's see. There was this one. After all this time, Grayskull is ours. Oh! Like oh, such a the, there's your introduction. It's so good. That that is Skeletor. That is <laughs> I mean, absolutely Skeletor. You know, Evil Lynn might be in love with Skeletor, but Skeletor is in love with power. Yes. Yep. And it's all for him. Oh. And I did shorten that one down. There's a longer pause. He makes it even more dramatic, but I'm like, I can't I can't play a sound clip that's got like you know, eight seconds of silence. Um and finally, this one. Now, I, Skeletor, am master of the universe. Oh, right. Yep. Said the title. Yep. And again, Frank Langella. Like, I could have just, ca- I could have captured every line of dialogue he read and just listened to it all night. It's just so, he's just having so much fun. It is really like, it is on par for me because the Street Fighter movie is bad. It's worse than this, but 
it has some redeeming qualities, and one of those is Raul Julia. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why I, I can go back to this movie and watch it is because Skeletor is just, just so good. Yeah. I I, I definitely will rewatch this. Like, it, it'll be in my list of, you know, movies I watch when I just, I don't really want to watch anything serious. I, I just want to have something on. Yeah, it's it definitely fits that bill. I just need I need some noise. I need something that I can watch and have it. Uh, it's junk food. It's movie junk food. Um, so definitely worth watching uh, for that. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I'm glad that you liked yeah. the movie. Uh, you know, it's it's always you're never entirely sure. But I felt like this, I felt like this had just the right amount of kind of camp and and sort of fun that I, I felt decent about it. But you still never know. So I'm really glad to hear that you enjoyed it. It, it definitely doesn't live up to all of the hate that I'd been, you know, living with and participating in throughout the years. Yeah. Well, now when people do that, you can be like, hey, look, have you watched the movie? Because I felt the way you did and I, and I saw it. And Yeah. Well, good. So, uh, so thank you so much for being on uh, this week. This was fun. Um, yeah. And, and I'm glad, to, I'm always glad to show somebody a new movie and, and one like this where, it's it's fun because you have such a connection to the time period that this came out in and the property that it was based on and just how wildly different that can be interpreted by by somebody, yeah. you know. Um, so that that's great. Uh, now, you do a show called Transmission? Transmissions. Transmissions. Yeah. So what is that show and where can people find that? It, it is all about Transformers. Um, it's actually two shows every week. Um, we do transmissions about the toy side of transformers and then we do alt mode which is like what transformers when they turn into like their vehicle form it's okay. their alt mode yeah um so alt mode is our show all about comics um tv shows movies uh we just we 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 noticed that our our listeners were kind of some listened only for the toy stuff some listened only for the media stuff so we split into two shows and um it's been going on for almost nine years now so there's there's always something new my wife does not understand how i can talk about transformers <laughs> for multiple hours every week but there's there's always new news there was just a lego optimus prime that was announced that looks amazing oh nice so um yeah so you can go to transmissionspodcast.com and find everything there um we also have uh, our editor does a live play rpg um podcast about like set in the transformers universe that's been really popular so oh that sounds really fun that's yeah, cool it's, it's called empire of rust so very neat you know, we, we're just we're trucking along we're should hit episode 500 this summer so. well congrats on that uh ahead of time 500 yeah, that's it's a big number that's yeah. impressive nine years too huh nine years of doing anything yeah. is a long time i know and nine years talking Transformers. You got to love Transformers for that. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. That's great. I well, mean, you, you can tell I got a little bit of love for Transformers. A little bit. Transformers yeah, a little bit. Looking at that background. Um, yeah. uh, There's actually a He-Man up there somewhere off camera. Uh, I just remembered I have, a, I have a He-Man and a Skeletor up there somewhere. Did you have the um, the battle damage one that had like the little tumbler in the chest where it would be normal? Right. Like it was the only time where He-Man wore armor I, instead of just the harness. I know I had the regular He-Man. I can't remember if 
I think I also had that one, or I had the Skeletor one of those. Yeah, I think I had the. Skeletor I know I did one. have. Yeah, I know. I know I had one of the figures that did that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, they they had so many great figures: Triclops and Manny faces, and... Well, and the vehicles were really what did it for me. That the vehicles were so cool. Oh yeah. Excellent. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for being on. This was super fun, and uh, and I'm glad Thanks that I got life. to show you something new. Yeah, this was a blast. Excellent. Uh, now, next week, uh, I have a friend of the show, Stephen Adams, is going to come back. He's making me watch Greenland uh, because he won't stop talking about Greenland starring uh, Gerard Butler. And so I have finally acquiesced and said, yes, I will watch Greenland. So we're doing that next week. Um, now, this show is recorded typically Sunday nights. It is a Saturday night uh, this week. Um, and uh, you can catch the, the show live at twitch.tv slash tvstravis. And then as a podcast, it comes out on Wednesdays, anywhere you get your podcasts, or at tvstravis.com. Um, and uh, leaving a rating and review on like Apple Podcasts does help the show to become more discoverable. So I do appreciate that. You can also uh, help support the show by going to ko-fi.com slash tvstravis and buy me a cup of coffee. Uh, I would also appreciate that if you do. But uh, just listening to the show, telling people about it, super helpful, and I appreciate all of you uh, that do. So thank you for that. Thank you, Jeremy, for being on this week. And uh, come on back next week for Greenland with Stephen Adams. That'll be fun. Until then... Remember to enjoy your movies, even if they are nothing like the cartoon that they're uh, adapting. This has been Wayne Wilson. No more crackling around. What is this? Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>